Did she follow protocol? Yeah, I think so. This says you came back covered in bite marks wearing an alien frock. Well, she had nothing to do with that? You know, I don't remember much. <sighs> nothing insubordinate? Not that I saw. Unbelievable. She undermines me in front of the crew. I'm sure nobody notices. Yeah, they do. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 42 of Give Me That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're talking about something that maybe happens more than it should on Star Trek. Absolutely. <laughs> Insubordination. So, welcome to the show, uh, our military expert from the Canadian Military History Podcast. It's Mike Lacroix. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this. I go to the expert when it comes to these sorts of things, because as we talked about last time we were uh, on the show together, Starfleet is military, but then it's not, but then it is. So, uh, but, but one of the things we didn't really talk about was that concept of insubordination specifically. Yeah. Uh, because for TV purposes, it happens a lot. It does. <laughs> so just, just to throw it out there, like I'm not a military lawyer, or an expert on UK or US military law, even though we're going to touch on some of that a little bit. Just for my own resume here, my CV, I'm trained in the administration of Canadian military justice, and I have laid charges against soldiers. I've conducted investigations, and I've heard one summary trial so far as, as the summary trial officer, but I'm not really here to discuss any of those. I'm just here to comment on fiction. So this actually protects me from being charged with insubordination myself. <laughs> if I was to offer an opinion on the administration of Canadian military justice or things right. that are outside of what my own personal experience is, then I would be in hot water. But we're going to comment on fiction. You were on the show before, so we do not need to go through the usual questionnaire. You've proven your Star Trek cred already. Yeah, I, I want to throw one thing on that. When I started watching Star Trek, I thought that they were lost and they couldn't get back to Earth. And I think I picked that up from a combination of Space 1999 and Gilligan's Island, maybe. Lost in Space, perhaps. But it was it was kind of like, it seems they could go back to Earth anytime they want. Why don't they just go? <laughs> but anyhow. Sometimes we we do combine memories yeah, in that sure. way. So I, like I said on a previous show, probably... You know, my own first memory of Star Trek was um, was in French, and it was the 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 Romulan incident where the show ends with Kirk having pointy ears, and I thought he had pointy ears for I don't know a season because I kept seeing as a child, I kept seeing that episode and thinking it was a different episode. Oh, this must be during that time where he had pointed ears, right? <laughs> Kids. <laughs> We're talking about insubordination. Let's get right to it. Sure. First things first. 
What do we mean when we talk about insubordinate behavior? You know, for the layman, what is that term right. in the military context? So we don't have the Starfleet Code of Military Justice to refer to. And I think I got roasted a little bit in the comments last time by applying today's standards to the 23rd century. But um, I think if we use a combination of what we know now, and then maybe we can give the future uh, Starfleet a little bit of leeway here and there as we go on. But we'll start with, first of all, the Canadian National Defense Act. So Section 85 clearly states every person who uses threatening or insulting language to or behaves with contempt towards a superior officer is guilty of an offense and then on conviction is liable to dismissal with disgrace or less punishment. So that's the most concise and consolidated definition I could find. So basically, insulting language, threatening, or contempt. And a superior officer in this context includes, for example, a private being insubordinate to a corporal, even though a corporal is not an officer, to this section of the National Defense Act, um, any member is actually an officer. It's, it's just... It's just the language. So it doesn't matter what the rank difference is. When I look at the UK Armed Forces Act of 2006, part one breaks insubordination into four distinct categories. Uh, Section 11, misconduct towards a superior officer, and that includes violence, threats, or disrespect. Section 12 includes disobedience to lawful commands, and that's just plain old outright disobedience, the intention to disobey, or just being reckless to regarding obeying orders. So you, you don't care whether or not you follow the order. You're just reckless about it. Section 13 says contravention of standing orders. So that would be disobeying a risk, written policy or any procedural orders. And then number 14 would be using force against a sentry. And that's uh, using force or threatening force against a sentry, guard, or traffic control. I don't know if the sentry's name is Tiny, but maybe we'll get to that uh, during our discussion here. <laughs> okay. U.S. military law is pretty much the most complex that I found. So it's the United States Code of Military Justice, Section 89 through 92. So starting off is disrespect towards a superior commissioned officer. So that's acting in any disrespectful manner in any way, but only towards an officer. So they make that distinction that it can't be a, a sergeant or a sergeant major or a corporal. It has to be towards an officer. Then uh, moving on, assaulting or willfully disobeying a superior commissioned officer. So the order is issued to, to the officer and the subordinate disobeys or assault or threatens the officer. We'll probably get into that in discovery. That one uh, really speaks to that section. Then moving on, insubordinate conduct towards a warrant officer, non-commissioned officer, or petty officer. So this is any disrespect, disobedience, or violence, and threats of violence, but only towards NCOs. And then finally, failure to obey an order. So in U.S. terms, it's dereliction of duty, and that could also be any written order. It's, it's fairly broad and fairly wide across those three uh, nations. But the Canadian definition is pretty concise. It's the most concise and consolidated that I could find. Every person who used threatening or insulting language or behaves with contempt, which is really what, what I had my eye on. But when I started looking at these other militaries, I saw some more doors that could open up. So it, it sort of widened my view a little bit. 
And then there's Starfleet, copied from or evolved from the American version, because it is an American show. Yeah, but you'd, you'd think maybe they would follow some Royal Navy or British Navy tradition as well, because, the let's face it, the American Navy kind of got its roots from the British Navy, and, and how they've evolved to today and their standing today is completely separate from that, but their evolution comes from the British Royal Navy. So They did see Picard as sort of Horatio Hornblower. That was one of the inspirations for the character and the way the show is set up. It goes back to the time of the old naval vessels, you know, Napoleonic era. Yeah, absolutely. Ships, yeah. I mean, you, we don't have information on those particular, you know, walk the plank. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, Worf did walk the plank, so... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that was a supposed to be you know, a reference to that. Let's take an example. So what would be a show or a movie where there's a whole lot of insubordination that we can discuss? Well, I think the most simple and straightforward one comes from Star Trek First Contact. And I think that when Picard states he's about to commit a direct violation of his orders, he announces it to the crew... He states that any disagreement would be noted in the ship's log. And it seems like Picard sets that up so that he would be the only one to own the risk. And as someone just sitting in a theater looking at uh, the the movie, you would think, oh, well, I guess everybody's got to be aligned with Picard's line of thinking because he's announced it. He's told everybody. Now, there is one line where Data is contemptuous himself towards the orders because he says, to hell with our orders. That's basically contempt right there. But here's the big problem. And I have to credit my own commanding officer for this because he he sort of shed some light onto this for me. You discussed the whole Star Trek thing with other officers? With one other officer. Okay, well, uh, I mean... <laughs> my own my own CO, he, he, I, I sort of bounced it off of him, so he gave me a different take on this, okay. which I really appreciated, but anyhow. So Picard tells everybody he's going to disobey his own orders. What that means is now anyone acting with him is now in full knowledge, and they're all equally culpable, just as much as him. So regardless of the fact that they saved everybody on Earth from the threat of the Borg. As soon as he does that, everybody who follows him is culpable for that act of insubordination. And you could even align it to a mutiny in the fact that everybody is aligned with disobeying their order. And the example I can give is the actual mutiny on the bounty, where Fletcher Christensen said to the mutineers, those of you that are aligned with me, you can no longer serve in, in the Royal Navy. You're done. Your career is over. If they catch you, they will hang you. You will be convicted of mutiny. And some were caught and some were hanged. The people that followed Fletcher Christensen ended up on Pictaran Island, and they had to live in isolation from the rest of their family and the rest of their world for the remainder of their lives. And Captain Bly went down and he hunted down as many of them as he could. And those that were found were executed for mutiny. It would have been much better in reflection if Picard had have left the bridge and come back on and said, we have new orders. Our new orders is to RV with the fleet and join in the battle. Because then he would have absolved all of his subordinates of any culpability. It would have been on him alone that he disobeyed. 
And the example from history I can give is the My Lai Massacre, where Lieutenant Cowley, well, Lieutenant, I guess, because he's American, was guilty of killing civilians, but the 26 soldiers that were following his orders were not because they were misled into believing that they were following lawful orders. Here's my follow-up question, maybe. Let's say in that case, or any of these cases, you're being misled, and you refuse the order. You refuse the unlawful order, even though you do not know it. it is unlawful. Are you also, from your perspective, maybe you are being insubordinate, uh, are you also liable for insubordination? You know, because you're also not following an order from a superior officer, but because he's unlawful... Okay, well, to straighten out your thinking a little bit here, if you don't know that the order is unlawful, then it's your duty to follow it. But there is no order that can be issued to you as a soldier that you have to obey that is manifestly unlawful. So if if you're issued something that you believe is completely unlawful, then you're obligated to not obey it. If you're guessing, it's not manifestly unlawful. So you're not you haven't reached that point where you can say, no, you know what, sir, that's not a lawful order and I cannot follow it. If you're guessing, yeah, you're, you're on thin ice. Because <laughs> yeah. you could be wrong, right? So you're guessing. It's just the kind of thing that does happen on television. You right. Know, the, is the commanding officer, uh, this is not a problem necessarily, you know, in, in real military history, but, you know, in Star Trek, your, your superior officer is being taken over by aliens or <laughs> there are a lot of uh, possibilities that you know wouldn't occur in well, our time. Well, I mean, they frame. have struggled with that, and and that's something I wanted to avoid was where an alien takes over the mind of someone because they've dealt with that through. Well, are we relieving him of duty for medical reasons? Are right. we uh, obligated to follow him? We think he's under possession by an alien force or data taking over the entire enterprise when he was taken over by his creator. That doesn't count. Kind of left those off the table because those people aren't really... You can't show intent, yeah. Exactly. So here, to reframe your example, Picard disobeys an order from Starfleet Command. Right. So he's at fault, but when he includes everyone, when he gives everybody a choice, I mean, they're all stuck on that ship. That may be a false choice. Can't drive the ship alone, so everybody's going to follow him, of course. Well, he said, anyone who objects will be noted in the ship's log. So, so long as someone objects, they're pretty much ab absolved. If they operate their duty in order to save their own life, they have a reasonable and articulable defense to the act of mutiny or the act of insubordination. Okay, so you're saying that, let's say, Troy isn't on board with this. And she says, well, I have an objection, but then she still carries out the mission. No, she'd have to... She'd have to go to her quarters. She'd and... have to go to her quarters and shut her down. Okay, okay. Unless her life was directly threatened by the operation of the ship, then and by her not fulfilling her duty, that she or someone else would die, then then there's really no defense. They're pretty much all guilty of mutiny. The, there is a part later in the movie, you know, Picard's not calling up anyone and insulting them, but that was part of the insubordination description, just simply being disrespectful. And that does right. happen in the movie as well. Worf basically utters threatening language to Picard later in the movie, and he basically says, If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Something that I typically think when I'm in conflict with somebody. I don't <laughs> say it out loud, but you know the thought does cross my mind in that voice. But anyhow, 
So this is a direct threat to a superior officer. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he couches it a little bit by saying, if you were any other man, but it's still very much a threat to kill him. Now, I think Worf has a bit of defense because it was said in a way that was culturally insensitive. So I don't think Worf would follow the correct course by lodging a complaint with the Starfleet harassment advisor saying that he was told something by his captain that was culturally insensitive and that the captain should get a reprimand for that. This is the only way that that character could respond. Otherwise, it'd be a very boring movie because we'd just see, you know, harassment meetings and resolution meetings between Picard and Worf. Troy is very busy. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, it makes for good drama, but telling your captain that you'll kill him where he stands and paraphrasing it or, or adding a little comforting caveat on there, if you were someone else, I would kill you where you stand. No, that's insubordination right there. Well, one defense that he does have is that at this point, they're in Earth's past. They're unlikely to come back from it. You know, it's like Starfleet doesn't exist kind of thing. And maybe we're, we'll never get home. Right. So who's going to hear the trial, right? Because there's no trying authority. So at, at this, this point, point, are we just being, have we just been thrown into this situation and we're all really on our own and we're following orders, but it's because we have a leader, not because we have a captain and we're part of a military organization. That may be, truthfully, I think Worf just lost it. He <laughs> says he blew a fuse right. at that point. He was so outraged. And I think the way that they resolved it is the correct way. They resolved it with a kind of half-hearted apology. I think he said, some of the things I said to you, I regret. Some. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And then he, then he says something nice about him, you know, no, for reals, Worf, you, you, you know, you're the bravest man I know. That's right. And makes it better because they are also a family and they're friends. And so there, there are relationships there that go beyond simple rank as there would be in the service for real. There must be people are just like have friendships with superior officers, and that must play into it, does it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is something that you have to be mindful of when you assume a position of command over your friends that at some point you may have to discipline them. And it's something that you have to weigh a lot. It's it's one of the quote-unquote burdens of command is the fact that at one point in your career where your, your pals and you're you're joking with them and you're having a good time and then at some point somebody outpaces the other and next thing you know you're in command over them that perception of influence or that perception of inequality between the way you treat your pal and the way you treat another subordinate who may not have that same relationship with you is something that weighs on you a lot in a position of command And you try to be impartial as best as you can. You try not to have favoritism. I hope that it happens properly every single time. But we're all people, right? Like, And we're going down the chain when when you say it that way. But up the chain is, while not a burden, it is a, between you and your friend, uh, you are very familiar. And you might say things that are disrespectful. You maybe have like a sarcastic tone and uh, nature and kind of banter. But right. then uh, then your friend becomes your superior. If you keep speaking like this, especially in front of other subordinates, then you may seem to be 
lacking in respect. You may seem insubordinate because you have that relationship, and then you have to change your relationship, or you have to change your... I mean, especially in front of others, yeah. I would imagine. Well, I have personal first-hand knowledge, so I, I'm covered, where there were two peers that had always spoken to each other in sort of a disrespectful, semi-sarcastic manner, called each other rude names. They were both the same rank, but one was appointed at a higher position than the other. And the other was upset at the person of the higher appointment, but they were both the same rank. And he called them one of the insulting names that he had called them in the past, even though there was some friction between the two. And then at his trial, he used that as his defense to say, I've always called him that rude and insulting name for the past 20 years. Suddenly, I'm not allowed to call him and I'm being charged for it. So that was his defense, and uh, he ended up being exonerated for it. Okay. It's not the best situation to be in where you can't separate that and understand that somebody is appointed higher. Because we have – there's difference in rank, but there's difference in appointment. And your appointment actually supersedes your rank. So if you're appointed as being in charge of something, regardless of the ranks that are involved, that person is appointed as being in charge of, of something that – trumps whatever rank anybody is wearing on their arm. Like in that case, basically, it's reflex action. I'm used to saying that, so I said it. Yeah, yeah. Charges were heard, and based on their previous relationship, the charges were dismissed in this one case. <laughs> in Star Trek, this sort of stuff, for drama's sake, happens, I'm not going to say a lot, but routinely. It's like I, I'm thinking of the episode Pen Pals, where Data... After being told to stop his uh, letter writing campaign to a little girl right. and tell her that her planet's going to blow and all of that stuff, still does it. Those kinds of things happen so that there is a story. Yes, you of know? course. And so we'll, we'll have moments of to make a great scene, somebody will be like, go over the line. Yeah. My question is do we know that there are no reprisals? I mean, we don't see any court martials or, you know, trials or whatever, but is it possible that? Every time these things happen, well, sometimes they do say it, but that there are reprimands on record that, you know, that it is affecting their ability to be promoted or. Well, yeah, there's, there's a good one because Worf had a reprimand placed on his record for killing Dura. Yeah, for murder. Yeah. Uh, it's but pretty, pretty lax. That never held him back because he still got promoted. Like he made it up to what? Lieutenant Commander? He still got promoted. Not It never held him back. It never was brought up ever again. I mean, that's one of the uh, TV tropes, I guess, episodic uh, television. But the one that did have some severe consequence was uh, in Discovery. In the U.S. Code of Military Justice, Section 90, is that an order given to an officer and then assaulting that officer to facilitate the act of disobedience and then the common jargon would be known as fragging the officer. That's that's the way the common language would be in military context. So basically, injuring or incapacitating the CO to avoid following the orders of the superior commander, in this case it was Admiral Anderson, said to the Discovery, stay put, wait for backup. And then Captain Georgiou says, okay, that's what we're going to do. And then Commander Burnham is saying, no, like... No, we have to attack. She had different knowledge than than the captain did. The captain made the decision. We're going to follow the admiral's orders. That's what we're doing. So then Burnham assaults Captain Georgiou, 
I think she used a Vulcan nerve pinch so that the Shenzhou would be prevented from completing the mission in the manner ordered, which is stay put, wait for backup. Now, this one, I got to say, it's not Muni. You can't mutiny all by yourself. <laughs> I know this is uh, this, this is something that bothered you a lot because we've talked about it before. Yeah, that's right. The, the whole idea that she is then a mutineer and she's like, Starfleet's only mutineer and it's never happened before. There's never been a yeah. mutiny. I mean, you know, maybe the courts never heard a mutiny because when we close this out, I got a huge mutiny for you that'll knock your socks off. It's the greatest mutiny ever pulled off in the entire history of Starfleet. Okay. But, Anyhow, we'll get to that at the end, but I'll leave you in suspense. You can't mutiny alone, is the point. Exactly. She is merely being insubordinate. Well, I say merely. According to the U.S. Code of Military Justice, it falls clearly into insubordination, assaulting an officer to facilitate the act of disobedience. Right in there. Mutiny is an act of insubordination as well. For sure. It just needs to be done with other people. Right. (laughs) As organized as a group. Yeah, you can't mutiny alone. The only charge of mutiny that you can have alone is incitement to mutiny. So if you go to all the people and say, hey, we should mutiny, and they all say no, you're in hot water because you're going to end up getting charged with incitement to mutiny, even though nobody joined you. I mean, she knocks Georgiou out. Oh, it happens in an office, right? Yeah, like that's the, right. The rest of the Off crew the don't know then that her that her orders are unlawful. That's correct. Yeah. So she comes back on the bridge. And says, fire, and then Georgiou shoots her. She stops the plot, basically. You know, all they had to do was have one other Vulcan go, yeah, I agree, and then they would have had mutiny. You know, the one that I that really solidified this in my mind, that this was worthy of talking about, has to do with Data, is the first one was Gambit Part 1 and 2, where Worf is displaying impatience with Data while he's in the role of XO. So... There was friction with Data's orders, and Worf was displaying insubordinate attitudes towards Data in that role as the 2IC. Lieutenant, I am dissatisfied with your performance as first officer. May I ask in what way? You continually question my orders in front of the crew. I do not believe this is appropriate behavior. With all due respect, sir, I have always felt free to voice my opinions, even when they differ from those of Captain Picard or Commander Riker. I do not recall Commander Riker ever publicly showing irritation with his captain as you did a moment ago. No, sir. He was behaving with contempt. So if we go to the Canadian definition, Worf was behaving with contempt towards a superior officer or the manner by which the superior officer was carrying out his orders. There is a study. I can't remember who who authored it, but it's from the 50s or early 60s, and it has to do with forming groups and group dynamic. And when you form a new group, and this is essentially what happens in the episode, is that Data is now in the new position as captain, so he's forming a new group, and Worf is his 2IC, so there's a new dynamic in that, even though they're already established as teammates prior to this. So that new group comes together. And if you think about any time you've been partnered with someone or or you've had to form a group, whether it's in school or sports or another context, you come together and you try to feel everybody out. And then there's a little bit of friction that happens between the different personalities and the different ways that people want to get things done. And maybe the person that's in charge isn't it doing it the way that you think it would happen or the way that you've experienced in the past. So we have our forming stage, and then the next stage is storming, it's called. 
once you get through that storming, you start figuring out the way things are going. And to Worf and Data's credit, when Data pulls Worf into the office and says, look, here's the deal. I'll put you out of the role of 2IC. I'll promote Jordy into that position. You can go back to security and there'll be nothing said. Or you can continue in the role of XO, but we're not going to do this in subordination anymore. So that's where they established their norming. So we started with forming. We've gone through storming. We're now at norming. Once they get through norming, they understand how they're going to work together. They get into performing. And those are the four stages of group dynamics, forming, storming, norming, and performing. There is a fifth stage, which is adjourning, which means the team breaks up. In this case, the captain comes back, he goes to bed, and Riker comes back and he goes to jail. So they got to wait a little bit for the adjourning phase until Riker finishes his sentence and Picard wakes up. But they go through the five stages, and it's a really good example of military interplay or that military dynamic of that sort of, I don't know if this guy's doing it the way I want or the way that I would do it. The other one that's really a, a good example of what is termed as malicious compliance is when data is dealing with uh, is commanding the USS Sutherland. Right. And I can't remember the name of the officer that was insubordinate to him, but the officer basically says he's shutting down parts of the ship because of radiation. And then data turns to him, said, I didn't order that. And he says, fine, I'll turn it all back on. And that, that is malicious compliance right there. And that is contempt. And that is direct insubordination. Now that officer ends up regaining his trust when he learns that data is actually doing things properly. And his long game is what his objective is not the immediate. They spent a lot more time in storming than they did in moving on to norming and performing using that that model. Commander Hobson. I think it's Lieutenant Commander, though, because they were both the same rank. Uh, Hobson, in, uh, as first officer here, is, is exactly what I was thinking about when you mentioned that situation with Worf as XO. It's like it happens all the time for Data because people don't trust that because he's a machine. There is a, you know, a bias because he's right. non-human. You don't give a damn about the people whose lives you're throwing away. We're not just machines. Mr. Hobson, you will carry out my orders or I will relieve you of duty. And Spock got the same deal when he got to command the Enterprise on TOS. It would often yeah. happen that there was always like this racist officer on deck who would, you know, make comments, disobey the orders, question the orders, uh, and Spock would have to get very stern with them, just like Data does in those episodes. Uh, and yeah. then because they are unemotional, there are those human characters that are going, and that's part of the, the drama of the show, but there are these characters are saying, we're just numbers to you. We're just, you don't have the empathy necessary to command the crew. Is what they're right. saying. So they are in th – this is the type of insubordinate behavior that happens all the time or mostly in Star Trek. I think most examples probably are about a sort of xenophobia. Oh, I, uh, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. That would happen also in the real world where uh, members of the, the personnel might be racist or sexist or that might happen in, in a real-world situation as well. So that, that's just a team that's spending a lot more time in storming and focusing on their differences and what's causing the friction rather than moving on to norming and then getting to that objective of performing. But if we can close out Redemption Part 2, 
Data ends up disobeying Picard in that episode by not rendezvousing with the fleet right. as ordered. Which Hobson also calls him out on. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And then what ends up happening is that disobedience ended up being, first of all, time sensitive. And Data was the only one with the information that was able to make that series of decisions. So Data owned the risks. He didn't communicate it to the crew. I'm disobeying our orders. He basically just said, here's what we're doing. I'm commanding. I'm telling you what to do. And then at the end, he went to see Picard for discipline. He said, I disobeyed you. What's my consequence? I'm ready to accept it. And this is where this leads right into the previous question you asked me a bit a little while ago. If you are required to obey an order that's manifestly unlawful, in this case, it wasn't manifestly unlawful, but it was serving what the higher intent is. As members of the military, if we understand what our commander's intent is, we have some freedom in how we interpret to follow our orders. So Data understood Picard's intent was to detect the Romulans. And while Picard ordered him to RV in another location, Data was actually fulfilling Picard's higher intent by detecting the Romulans and deterring their incursion. So in a way, he was disobeying his direct order to RV, but he was obeying a higher order, which is the mission orders. And I imagine this happens in the real world because combat situations are fluid, things happen, things change, and then you have to reassess and readjust on the fly very often and not you can't get you can't ex- explain your plan or get new orders in time you just have to react on the spot right and i don't have first-hand knowledge of that type of thing but definitely if you want to read some canadian military history around 2006 you'll find some interesting stuff that i can't comment on <laughs> okay <laughs> now you mentioned spock and i got a lot of notes on spock especially with regards to not only his behavior, which is insubordinate, but also the way people are insubordinate to him. And you kind of touched on some of the the racist things that I had made some notes on. So the one thing that I really, really cued in on with this is um, the menagerie one and two. Spock basically labels it as treachery and mutiny. It's not mutiny. The, the closest it could be would be incitement to mutiny where he tried to get Pike to go along. But Pike blinked no right away, so it's not really mutiny. Out of Palamine that was charged with what would be conspiracy, and at his trial, it was brought up, who were the co-accused? And when the prosecution wasn't able to bring up any co-accused, the defense basically asked, who's he charged with conspiring with, himself? And at that point, the whole trial fell apart and off everybody went in their separate directions. But definitely Spock is insubordinate in the menagerie where, first of all, he starts out with deceit to divert the Enterprise to the space station. So then he he assaults the technician in the server room. Then Spock impersonates a superior officer by playing a recording that's apparently Kirk giving orders to the Enterprise. He then violates General Order 7, which is the order not to contact the people of Talos. Then Kirk gets charged with neglect of duty because of Spock's behavior, because they basically say, whatever happens on your ship, Captain, you're responsible for. Therefore, you're 
you're responsible for neglect of duty yourself. But I found that there's more neglect of duty on Kirk, Pike, and holographic Mendez for finding Spock guilty of mutiny because he never committed a mutiny. But in the end, everybody gets exonerated and there's no consequence for anybody, even Kirk and Pike for convicting Spock of mutiny, even though he never did it. That one's tons of insubordination on perpetrated by Spock. In a mock time, Spock is very rude with Kirk, basically shouting at him. I have made my request, Captain. All I require from you is that you answer it, yes or no. And then Spock orders a course change of the ship without informing Kirk. So that's clearly insubordinate because he knows that the Enterprise is due to be at the induction of the new leader for the planetary government. But he diverts the Enterprise to Vulcan without informing Kirk. Then Kirk disobeys Starfleet orders to take Spock to Vulcan. So Kirk is now being insubordinate. And then Sulu, who is a lieutenant or lieutenant, he's whining to Chekhov, who's an ensign. And then he's encouraging Chekhov to join in in the insubordinate behavior. Right. So even on Sulu, there's some insubordination in there. But then again... Just like in the menagerie, Kirk is absolved of his act of insubordination by a retroactive order to go to Vulcan. And then, of course, Spock is absolved of his acts of insubordination. And I kind of played that caveat at the beginning that I wasn't going to talk about alien influence or hypnotism or any of that nonsense. So you can kind of excuse Spock due to his pawn far, but... Uh, I don't know. He was still insubordinate in my book. More often than not, exoneration is kind of the rule. Riker spending time in a cell and data reporting for disciplinary action, those are pretty rare. Those are the exceptions to the rule. It's like, really? You know, Riker spent yeah. a month in the cell or whatever it was? is surprising because the show so often just waves things, you know, just like there's a magic wand that it, it never happened. You solved the problem, therefore the offense never occurred. Right which is a huge Star Trek trope. Yes, I'll have some comments. I'll have some comments on that. I'll, I'm going to try to make a case for this making sense somehow at the end of the show. So I looked at both the Corbomite Maneuver and the Balance of Terror, where the bridge officers were insubordinate to Kirk and to Spock. Bailey, but Styles, I chose over the two because he was way more insubordinate. He was insubordinate towards Kirk and both Spock. And one of the things he says, he says, may I respectfully remind the captain what has happened? Well, just because you start your sentence with respectfully doesn't mean that anything after that suddenly absolves you of being insubordinate. Styles is rude towards Kirk because he thinks that they should just attack the Romulans and there's no other course of action that he can see. But that's not his role. He's the navigator. Point the ship in the right direction. Let Sulu drive and do your job. Kirk tries to correct him, but then Sulu bumps in with a polite recommendation, very respectfully, and then the whole exchange just gets ignored. Later on, Styles is dressed down for his rude comment towards his 2IC, which is Spock, by Kirk. And he's told, leave your racism in your quarters. Bigotry, he says bigotry, he doesn't say racism, but bigotry has no place on the bridge. Styles is very sarcastic with Kirk when he's asked for his position in relation to the neutral zone. But Kirk doesn't address it at all. Uh, Styles asks for his opinion and then shouts at Spock, calling him Mr. Science Officer. 
And it's totally inappropriate for a lieutenant to be addressing a lieutenant commander in front of the captain. Even though he was asked for his input, he still should be doing it respectfully. Like this Styles guy, I don't know what, like, we never saw him before. We never saw him again. Just totally insubordinate, like, unbelievably. And throw in the racist or bigotry on top of that, this guy needs to be in the cells for sure. Not really insubordinate, but the whole hugging and cuddling between Kirk and Rand on the bridge <laughs> in front of the whole crew. I mean, that's uncalled for. Not, I can't say insubordination because it's kind of reciprocal on both ends, but definitely improper conduct. That's something that I think Kirk could be relieved of command for, cuddling the yeoman on the bridge in front of everybody. <laughs> yeah, I never got that. They did do away with the character eventually because that was not working. That's right. I mean, obviously, the actress had problems, personal problems that, that caused her dismissal. But it also yeah. never really worked, you know, as a relationship. Well, that's a whole other other scope. Yeah, if we close out Styles near the end of the episode, Styles makes a racial comment towards Spock. This time we'll handle things without your help, Vulcan. Totally lack of respect. Complete insubordination. And then Spock doesn't react. How is Spock supposed to maintain discipline if he doesn't respond to blatant acts of insubordination? I mean, he's just inviting it and showing the lesser ranks that he's accepting that kind of insubordination. Not really the best combination, but I mean, it makes for good TV, I guess. Good drama. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, that was the point. And we never saw that guy again, so maybe... No, maybe he went to jail. Maybe he got transferred real fast. Gets to... uh do movement planning tables. Those are a joy. <laughs> Before we get to the granddaddy of all acts of insubordination, I would like to talk about the end of the undiscovered country because there's a whole list of insubordinate that kind of leads towards mutiny. Maybe we could call it mutiny. There was no trial. I mean, the traitors, that's what they are. The traitors do yeah. get tried. You know, the, the insubordination I, I immediately think of is off-roading and contacting Sulu and it's like you know you know Sulu we could get in trouble for this and it's like Sulu's going uh, psh, 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 I can't psh, I can't psh. <laughs> so Spock displays initial contempt towards obeying the order for the Enterprise to return to base and then Valeris ends up initiating the, the acts of insubordination by suggesting the officers sabotage the ship is it sabotage or sabotage I can't remember Sabotage. <laughs> right. Uhura is complicit by falsely reporting that the Enterprise is experiencing technical malfunctions and the backup systems are inoperative. Now, Chekhov, who is acting as the 2IC or the XO, ends up corroborating this false narrative. So now the three of them are in a conspiracy right there together. So they're locked in. That, that could move out of insubordination and more into mutiny. But uh, each individual act is insubordination in itself. Now, Spock ends up undermining the chief engineer in order to remain defiant to the order. So the initial report is there's nothing wrong with the bloody thing when he's asked about the engines. And then the report is falsified and it's changed to they have weeks of repair. There's collusion there between Spock and Scotty. That collusion could be interpreted as mutiny, but both of those individual acts are insubordinate in themselves because they're basically telling Starfleet Command that they can't return to base because of all these technical problems they're experiencing when all of it is just a lie. 
As you touched on, underlying all of this is a conspiracy to undermine the objectives of the Federation by agents of Starfleet and the Klingon military. That's definitely conspiracy. I don't think that would be insubordination. It's far too high of a level. You could even bring that right up into the realm of treason, I think. Like they're trying to conspire to kill the president. Yeah, I'm no longer guessing. I think that's... No, the, the, definitely an act of treason. The, tra- the traitors are on another level. So everything that the Enterprise crew do, like rescuing Kirk and all against orders, is all to a higher purpose. Right. I mean, th- this is the crew that, in Star Trek IV, named their ship, their, their bird of prey, the Bounty. Yes. So they've got a, and this is before Undiscovered Country, so they've got, <laughs> I, th- I think it's part of their culture that, for them at least, that breaking the rules is a useful tool? Well, they were rewarded for uh, Yeah, so... So why not? <laughs> so, okay, so they have a, a huge defense in the fact that the orders that were being delivered to them were being delivered by traitors. So could that be stretched into the, into the realm of the orders for the Enterprise to return to base were manifestly unlawful? Therefore, anything they did in disobedience of that orders would be than lawful. I think they got a case. We didn't we didn't see any Star Trek lawyers. So in one final act of insubordination, and it's verbal only, goes to Spock. When the Enterprise is ordered for decommissioning, Spock's response is go to hell. He tries to avoid owning it by bracketing it with if I were human, which doesn't work. You can't do that. Like <laughs> it you can't sort of phrase your insubordination with little clauses that sort of mask your intent on either side. You know, like, if I can speak freely, sir, you're a jerk. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like, if you're insubordinate, you're insubordinate. So all that, that whole ending that is, you know, very sweet, it gives you the feels, and that whole thing is an insubordinate moment. Spock says that, but everybody else goes, oh, let's, uh, yeah, let's not go get decommissioned right away. Yeah, take the long way home. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so at that point, the entire bridge crew is complicit in that act of... Insubordination? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Are you ready for the granddaddy act of insubordination in all of Star Trek? Go for it. Now, now we could talk about Tom Paris getting demoted. That was sad. I'm sure there's something in Enterprise, or I'm sure there's something in DS9 that we haven't touched on. And But the biggest baddest act of insubordination in all of Star Trek has to go to Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. This even stretches, not even stretches, this goes directly into mutiny for sure. So Kirk leads a group to steal the Enterprise. So if we take it right from the base, Admiral Morrow, he's the commander of Starfleet. So he issues a directive to all purse. Like nobody can question they didn't receive the order. He's in front of everybody. He says, Genesis under quarantine. The Genesis planet is a forbidden subject. The Enterprise is to be scrapped. Scotty has to report to the Excelsior. And everybody's going to get the highest commendation for defeating Khan. So there we go. We have it. The orders are clear. Everyone's getting rewarded. And here's what you must do and here's what you can't do. So the first thing that happens is Kirk discusses the Genesis planet and the battle with Khan with Sarek, who is not in Starfleet. He's the Vulcan ambassador to Earth. And then he pulls up the Enterprise recordings and plays them for Sarek to view. So that's definitely insubordinate to Admiral Morrow's order. 
that Genesis is a forbidden subject. So it's sad that that involves Sark's son's death and and uh, he has to disclose the particulars of how that happened. Sarek arguably has a right to know how his son died in battle, but the Genesis planet is a forbidden subject. So I'm sorry, Sarek, this is classified. You don't have the clearance to view these recordings. So Kirk breaches Admiral Morrow's orders right there. So then Kirk meets with Morrow to ask for permission to take the Enterprise out. So he's already been told he can't. But he's going to go and ask permission. Morrow orders him not to go back to Genesis a second time. And he's told to drop the whole thing immediately. That's it. You're done. Don't bring this up. Kirk then turns around and tells the crew that the word is no. And he's therefore going anyways. At this point, what the crew should do is lawfully report him to their chain of command. But that doesn't really make a good movie. So <laughs> lining up at the Starfleet command headquarters and filling out forms and writing statements and being interviewed. So the next act of insubordination, McCoy tries to hire an Uber to take him to Genesis. He's attempting to get back to Genesis, and he's discussing the attempt with the Uber driver. He's the only one that actually gets a consequence because he's arrested by Starfleet security, and then he attempts to resist arrest. Just by talking about Genesis, he's now insubordinate to Admiral Morrow's direct orders. Now, Kirk and Sulu then assault Federation security guards assigned to guarding McCoy, and Sulu damages Federation property. So if we go back to that definition at the beginning, Sulu is assaulting a guard. I think that falls under the British Code, Section 14, using force against a sentry. Whether or not Starfleet adopts the British Code, that's definitely an assault against a sentry. Kirk does it too, and then Sulu damages Federation property. Kirk and Sulu are working together in this, that little act together. There's, we're crossing the line into mutiny there because they're working together. Uhura abducts and forcibly confines Mr. Adventure at gunpoint. That's forcible confinement and abduction. Don't think it's insubordination in itself, standing on its own, but it definitely forms part of the greater mutiny that's at play here. Scotty ends up sabotaging. Sabotage? Sabotage. 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 Anyhow. <laughs> Scotty ends up sabotaging the Excelsior, and then he abandons his post on the Excelsior. So by Scotty abandoning his post on the Excelsior, he's definitely disobeying or being insubordinate to Admiral Morrow's orders because Scotty to report to the Excelsior as captain of engineering. It's the end of his shift, but he should be going to his quarters. He shouldn't be going back to the Enterprise. Scotty does minimal repairs to the Enterprise once again. Morrow ordered the Enterprise to be scrapped, decommissioned. Scotty shouldn't be fixing that. So that's another act of insubordination. But it serves the higher purpose of the team, so that creeps into uh, mutiny. Once everyone is on the bridge, this is an interesting part of the movie, because once everyone's on the bridge, Kirk acts like anyone taking the next step would mean that they have consequences to follow. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty deep in, right? My friends... I can't ask you to go any further. Dr. McCoy and I have to do this. The rest of you do not. So he's acting like, look, whatever you did, those guards you beat up, the people, the acts of sabotage that you've done, disobeying Morrow's orders, all that's forgiven up to this point. But once you go further, you're in it for the long haul. They're all in it for the long haul. They're all guilty at this point in time. Once again, they don't bring up mutiny. Nobody talks about mutiny at all, even though they're ready to throw it out in any other context. 
so basically all of that in a nutshell. And then, of course, they drive drive the uh, Enterprise out the gate. Styles basically says, and Morrow also says it as well, if you do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again, point blank. Like, you're pushing your luck. You're going way past where the you know lines of reason are, are long past where you are here. They all end up being exonerated, like you pointed out in Star Trek IV, except for Kirk. Kirk is held account for disobeying orders. He's basically charged and convicted for disobeying orders or insubordination. That's what he ends up being convicted of. He gets reduced in rank from rear admiral, past commodore, all the way down to captain. And then to go back to your point, they all get rewarded by being put back into positions of, of rank and authority on the next Enterprise, the Enterprise A. Together. Together. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> together. To, together is an important point because obviously there's someone in there that is a bad influence on the others. But you keep right. them together, they're always going to act out this way because they always do. So they end up saving the Earth because of the, the space whales. But that outcome can't be used to erase the assaults, destruction of property, kidnapping, and theft. You can't do that. You can't say... Well, because you committed all these offenses, but after you did that, you did this really, really good thing. Therefore, all of your offenses are erased. It doesn't it, military justice never works like that. It, it doesn't happen, at least until the 23rd. Well, century, exactly. Right? And is Starfleet exactly military? So here's something that I've come upon, and I'm going to use it as my no prize for this. You know, basically the idea that if it all works out, you're fine is pretty much what's happening on, on screen. I've been watching or rewatching The Orville, you know, which is a TNG spoof. Right. Spoof, tribute. I mean, it's a lot more serious than, than I think it started out as being. So, so sometimes they'll explain something that is obviously a Trek trope. Maybe they are explaining something that Star Trek explained badly. And one of these things is to this point. Basically, in the show, the union is the same thing as uh, the Federation, so I, I guess it's all the same thing. They live in a post-scarcity utopia. There is no money. There's no reason for working to obtain funds or materials or anything. The real currency, and this is something that Star Trek's never actually gone and said outright, is reputation. That's the currency. Human ambition didn't vanish. The only thing that changed was how we quantify wealth. People still want to be rich. Only now, rich means being the best at what you do. So basically, we're flipping Maslow. So instead of looking for air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction, our base actualization is self-actualization. That is our basic need that needs to be fulfilled because in the way that you're explaining it, everything else has been taken care of. There is, well, maybe reproduction. Yeah, well, I mean, you get that with (laughs) reputation, so... (laughs) <laughs> sure. So if you have a lot of reputation, then you get more opportunities. You can be captain of a starship. So, okay, how does this work within the conversation we're having? I'm taking it back to Kirk saying, you know, risk is our business. In the Orville, they say this specifically. Basically, when someone is about to disobey orders from the Admiralty, it's a risk. But if you're right, it'll pay off. If it doesn't, then you can ruin your career. And they say this because it is a convenience on the show, but they do explain it away. So it seems to me that because reputation is what you're after and being the best at what you do and all of this stuff, there is a culture of being able to take those risks and they may pay off or they may not, but it is 
I'm I'm suggesting that subordination, some of it, not obviously not disrespecting officers and but the idea of not following an order for the higher purpose is acceptable. But if you were wrong, then you will ruin your career. It just so happens that we're watching people who are not wrong, who are very often right. Right. And you will be rewarded with reputation and reputation comes with certain privileges, which include being only knocked down to captain. <laughs> so I, th this is how I'm explaining it to myself. Absolutely. And my own no prize for this would be something whereas maybe in the example of the mutiny on the bounty, where there were mutineers and the reason they mutinied was because of the harsh discipline of flogging and any other of the physical punishments that were put on the crew by Bly, which is sort of one of the motivations to mutiny. And then those mutineers that were caught were executed, whereas now we're not executing mutineers in any of the navies that I can think of. I think maybe, and I'm not an expert on this, so people can call me out in the comments here. I think maybe the U.S. military still has death penalty on the book for mutiny. Uh, the Canadian military definitely took it out way more than 10 years ago. That's That's off the books now. I can't speak for the British military at all. Those kind of physical punishments are gone from the military. As far as I know, the death penalties are gone from most militaries. Uh, so we do have that softening of military discipline over time where it would be completely unacceptable by today's standards. And no one would even argue that it should be done if we flogged someone as part of a military justice. There's no way that we could at all justify that or say that that's a correct thing. But 200 years ago, that was normal. It was expected. If you were insubordinate to somebody, you were rude, you better expect a flogging. So over time, when we get to the 23rd century, maybe there is a huge softening of military discipline and, and these types of offenses aren't taken as seriously as they are today. I think maybe some of the things that you brought up might weigh into why that is softened or why it's not as serious yeah because in the examples that, that you've used uh, over the course of the show which ones paid off which ones didn't you know it's like well data's ploy in redemption worked so right. there there is no consequence the menagerie was a success for right restoring one of their honored leaders to some semblance of of life in that context so that's fine in first contact they save the Federation, they save their own timeline. So, again, that's fine. Right. But by today's standards, the ends cannot justify the means. If you use unlawful means to achieve the objective, and the objective turns out to be correct, by today's standards, you can't play that card. No. But I can agree that maybe in the future, they'll be... <laughs> They'll be a little bit more flexible about those types of things. There's an opposite example, the discovery example. Like, I believe that Burnham would have been successful at preventing a, a war with the Klingons if she'd been allowed to go her way. I, I, I believe right. in her anthropological knowledge in that moment. But she never gets to do it. She gets, you know, she gets zapped by Georgiou. So it didn't work out. 
because she never actually finished the the action and not having worked out she does get court-martialed falsely as a mutineer but certainly as an <laughs> as someone who disobeyed an order who was insubordinate who attacked a, a fellow officer uh, a superior officer it didn't work out for her and she did get punished it is that idea that i know is just for television for drama for Because it is an action-adventure show. Obviously, I understand that as being outside that universe. But inside the universe, I think it would make sense that they have a culture of taking these kinds of risks as being acceptable. The Maverick, you know, we get that a lot in TV and movies. The Maverick who breaks the rules and succeeds. We want to see that. In real life, we don't, you know. In in real life, that leads to, to tragedy. I'm really looking forward to seeing what the comments are on this episode. Because I think we've... Cracked a few shells here and made our omelet. And <laughs> I think people are going to have things to say. And I, I think that's part of the discussion that we're having and including all the audience into into our thoughts and our discussion. And, and it's going to be neat because the last time, you know, some people were on side and other people were really roasting me. So it was it was quite interesting, a bit of discussion. So the, this this will really generate something good, I think. I hope, anyways. Maybe you can come back next year when you can talk about that whole darned, why don't they get promoted out of the Enterprise question. Oh, my God. Career progression? You brought that up again. So So career progression is a whole realm of discussion. So let's let's book a time. Yeah, let's book that for 2021. (laughs) Uh, In the meantime, where can people hear more from you? I have my podcast, the Canadian Military History Podcast. There's a website with comments that supports it. I haven't recorded an episode in, I'm going to say, maybe two years. So there's 53 episodes out there in the world for people to listen to. And it's basically recording the stories of Canadian soldiers, private to general, and everyone in between. And it's a good mix, good blend of Canadian military stories. I did follow the podcasting trope of changing it up on April 1st. So there's a little bit of different episodes on the April 1st episodes. Maybe one day I'll get back to it, but right now it's not on the radar, regrettably. If it's new to you, it's it's new, point blank. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Well, not to be rude, because that would be insubordinate. I, I feel like you're, <laughs> you're my superior officer here. But I need the studio to myself, Mike, so I can do subspace transmissions. Sounds good. Energize. <laughs> That's Star Trek news and listener feedback on our previous episodes. Thanks again uh, for coming on to, to talk about this topic. Excellent. Thank you. Discoid's blog of geekery is Doctor Who, Babylon 5, Animation, Comics, Toys, Godzilla, Star Trek, Cats, Crypto, Role-playing Games, Battle Shovel, X-Files, Music, Podcasts, Board Games, Jack Kirby, Alien, Movie, Kung Fu, Dinosaur, and so much more. Discoid's blog of geekery, 10 years of content, more than 7,500 posts, still going strong at ciscoid.blogspot.com. Incoming subspace transmissions. First things first, Discovery Season 3 finally has an air date, and it will be October 15th. Its 13 episodes will be released every Thursday until the season finale on January 7th. Not coincidentally, it begins just after Star Trek Lower Decks' first season wraps, which means 23 consecutive episodes of Star Trek for fans of both shows. Since we're on the subject, the animated Lower Decks premiered last August 6th, and also drops on Thursdays on CBS All Access. The other animated Trek now has a title, Star Trek Prodigy. 
The CG series will debut exclusively on Nickelodeon in 2021 and tells the story of a group of lawless teens who discover a derelict Starfleet ship and use it to search for adventure, meaning, and salvation. Ben Hibben, the award-winning producer of Code Hunters, has been appointed showrunner. With movie and TV stars at home during COVID-19 lockdown, some of them have too much time on their hands, and they're turning their attention to Star Trek spoofing. For example, look for James McAvoy's homemade Star Force Sci-Fi-Solation, uh, which he released on YouTube. Two episodes available as of this recording. It's a silly lo-fi adventure filmed on phones and using props the actors would have around the house. He plays the captain, but it also features Outlander stars, Catriona Balfi, and Stephen Cree, among others. Now, you like your spoofs better when they have original Trek actors? No problem. Unbelievable, an indie film starring a puppet Kirk in Blazing Supermarionation, has been picked up for distribution. I'll let you know when and how it becomes available. This isn't really a COVID thing since it started filming in 2013, but it features Snoop Dogg as the villain, a bathroom humor as a necessary evil, and some 42 Trek actors, including Garrett Wong, Nichelle Nichols, Walter Koenig, Nana Visitor, Linda Park invoking the Hoshi Protocol, Robert Picardo, Armin Shimmerman, Marina Sirtis, Michael Dorn, Dominic Keating, Jeffrey Coombs invoking the Jeffrey Coombs Protocol, and lots more. Star Trek Picard will be out on DVD and Blu-ray on October 6th. Extras include behind-the-scenes featurettes for each episode, discussion on bringing Picard back to the screen with Patrick Stewart and the show's creators, a commentary track on that first episode, a look at the actors populating the show, featurettes on the XBs, props, production design, and of course, short treks, Children of Mars. Additionally, the Blu-ray has a commentary track on the short trek, deleted scenes, and a gag reel. You'll also be able to get the Picard soundtrack on vinyl on October 9th, though it is limited edition release. Uh, other Picard merchandise available before the end of the year includes a 2021 calendar, the prequel comic collection from IDW, Picard, the Book of Wisdom, which I guess collects the sagest advice from the show and the movies. And it looks like further ahead, Simon & Schuster has put a Star Trek Picard novel on their schedule, the second really, uh, but no date or title. Speaking of Picard, the show has been nominated for five Emmys, prosthetics, makeup, hairstyling, sound editing, and sound mixing. Alas, nothing in the acting category for Patrick Stewart, which CBS was pushing for. Short Treks has also been nominated for Best Short Form Comedy or Drama Series. As for the Star Trek movies that always seem to be on the horizon but never get here, the Noah Hawley-directed Trek is on pause, while Emma Watts, recently brought in from Fox to head up Paramount's motion picture group, is reportedly in the process of figuring out which way to go with the film franchise. She's also considering the Tarantino Trek project, that sounds like it's related to a piece of the action, and the Star Trek Beyond sequel with Chris Hemsworth. The Holly Trek would have potentially featured a new cast, though there are conflicting accounts about this, and a story about a deadly virus, and maybe that topic is what seems unappealing to Paramount now. Before we get into your comments on the previous episode, which was The Measure of an Android with Scott X, just want to mention the study that um, Mike LaCroix was talking about earlier about group dynamics. If you're looking for more information on that, the study was conducted by psychologist Bruce Tuckman in 1965, and there are articles about this all over the internet. All right, your comments. 
Chris Franklin says, this was thought-provoking as always. Lots of interesting questions raised. I just hope Picard Season 2 rises to the challenge and addresses some of these as opposed to hand-waving it away. Nice to hear they don't plan to, at the very least. We also had a comment from Brian Linton, who says that as a biologist, he says, I come at the topic of sentience from the perspective of animal cognition rather than AI. I particularly like the definition that Scott presented and the idea that we only understand sentience as much as it can be understood, as it evolved in hominids. Other species may have evolved different forms of sentience, or sentience may exist along a continuum in different species, rather than being a binary presence or absence kind of thing. In the end, that leads me to believe that we should be extremely careful when deciding whether something is sentient and deserving of special rights, or whether it is merely a biological or artificial machine that does not deserve such rights. On a slight tangent, I'm reminded that we humans tend to think of sentience as the next best thing to slice bread. In the end, it is just one of many different adaptations that living organisms have developed to be evolutionarily successful. Only time and the forces of natural selection will tell if sentience is really as great as we think. A comment from Trey Hooks. He says, though I wouldn't call myself an expert on artificial intelligence, as an IT product director and computer engineer, I do have some first-hand familiarity with the subject. So I thought... I would give some background and context. The starting point of all AI is algorithms and data. The goal of AI is to create a set of self-correcting business rules combined with a predictive model to consume relevant data and achieve a desired goal. I'll give an example. Let's say that I want to sell t-shirts. I want to give the customer the color t-shirt that they would most likely like. I sell two colors, blue and pink. A simple and admittedly sexist algorithm would be if the customer is a boy, recommend blue. If a girl, recommend pink. This would result in a computer program, no matter what, recommending blue for boy and pink for girl. It is incapable of making the recommendation outside of the binary choices or for anyone who identifies as non-binary. The first step in AI would be to provide statistical data and to record the efficacy of the computer's decision. I now add to my website a do you like this choice button. Now the algorithm looks at how often a person of a specified gender chose which color and recommends based off of how often it has been selected by a light person in the past. Bias can still creep in if the data itself has been impacted by bias. In the resume selection example Siskoid gave, the algorithms could have been biased, but so could the data if it took into account how often people with certain inputs on the resume were hired, and the company always had an in-person interview which determined who got hired, any biases of the person making the hiring decisions are inherited unknowingly. This is where most AI sits today. A lot of populist press presents AI as the computer replacing the human, but there's still a human deciding the goal, what parameters to consider, and monitoring the outcomes in order to tweak the algorithms. The AI becomes more more complex, the more data I feed into it. Age, income, zip code, etc. This is why big data has become such a hot commodity. As the data becomes more diverse, the decisions become more precise and more individualized. Where the bleeding edge is of AI, is AI learning to make new connections with the data. Does color preference wane based on a seasonal effect? This still relies on what data is chosen to provide the artificial intelligence and the goal provided to it. You see this in war games. Joshua takes what he learns from the behavior of tic-tac-toe and applies it to other games, in this case war, and comes to the conclusion that those things, which were defined previously as winnable, are in fact unwinnable. An artificial intelligence cannot learn history if it is only provided biological data, nor would it try to. 
we do not have, at least that I'm aware of, AI with self-determinant goals or programmed curiosity, which is really what data seems to have. Let me end on this. The Fire & Water podcast has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So if you like this content, want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list like Captain Doug Van Diver. I'm going to have to give him his own ship now. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. As usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire & Water Facebook page and on Twitter where we are FW Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Spotify. And until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly.